A lot of people have a moment when they realize religion was or wasn't for them. One of our producers brings us his story. At an overnight camp that was like a religious camp technically, and for my camp counselor, because for some reason we asked him uh, if he believed in God, and he said no. And so we asked him, like, I, uh, so what do you think happens when you die? And he said, uh, nothing, just nothing happens. And, like, in that moment I was like, oh, my God, like, is that that's an option you know like that could be what might like that's what it might be so from then on i mean like i don't even know what i still believe but that was like the first moment i questioned anything and i just remember that seventh grade overnight camp welcome to the second episode of american student radio on wiux lp bloomington we're your hosts tristan fitzpatrick and carter barrett so religion and spirituality for a lot of people is neither black nor white but falls within a gray area Throughout the hour, we'll be delving into this space with stories about deciding whether or not to become a nun, a born and raised Buddhist, and being gay in Catholic school. We hope you'll enjoy our show. From Bloom... From... Uh, again, live... Li- what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill real chill aliens conspiracy journalism and lesbians to begin we took this to the streets to ask people what is the difference between being religious and spiritual who's religious follows rules that someone else made up whereas if someone says they're spiritual they kind of make things up for themselves um i think religious is more practicing your religion and spiritual is just believing in something but not practicing on it as much maybe i think of religious i think of going to like a church or something but if you're spiritual i mean maybe like a deep connection with like others or the things around them i think religion's probably a little bit more focused like if you choose to follow a god or multiple gods. And then I think spirituality is a little bit larger in that there's some larger force that you follow or something that guides you or something that you believe in that you don't necessarily have to go to church or follow a certain god. To define religious, it comes to the fact that it's something that you do habitually. So spiritually, you could believe in something but not practice it. And so that's where religion comes in. It's actually practicing your spirituality. I think religious people follow a strict set of codes or rules, um, and I think spiritual people are more freeform. Religion isn't only for the religious. The mythologies and narratives that underlie religious teachings can speak to everyone. Though Indiana University senior Brennan Murphy doesn't consider himself to be a religious person, he finds strength and inspiration in the Hindu god Ganesha, who is the remover of obstacles. Ganesha, give me strength. perform in high school theater backstage everyone would grab hands and you know pray to the the gods of the theater that what we do we do well and that we get through the performance so we can all go home and personally I would always give a little prayer up to Ganesha saying that this is what is difficult for me in life please help me move through it I do feel that, uh, and this may be controversial for some people, but I, I believe that religion and spiritual belief are things that are open to anyone. Their core beliefs are things that no one person or one group can lay claim to. If they feel that that's one of the things that keeps the world turning, um, that I believe that you're welcome to find whatever spirituality makes this life easier for you. The first time I ever encountered Ganesha was when I was in second grade. I was so bored with whatever we were reading in class, I went to the library and I found this book 
of Mythological Creatures by Polita Sedgwick. I still have a copy over in my bookcase, actually. And I found this elephant-headed god named Ganesha. I guess I always identified with Ganesha because he was so different. And he just felt like an outsider a bit. When you look at the Hindu pantheon, there are gods that uh, are the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer of worlds. Ganesha is really small. He's the remover of obstacles, son of Shiva. He, he does not keep the world turning. And even though that he looks so different from us, he feels so human because he has very human wants of, of love, of hunger, of uh, lust around the world. People celebrate Ganesha, and I guess I'm just one of them. I've read Norse mythology, Japanese mythology, Shinto, as much as I could get my hands on. But Hindu mythology always struck me as something, something that I found on my own, that no one around me tried to push down my throat or to proselytize me into. But I found it, and when I would talk about it with other people, it became much more of a part of me. This piece was produced by Sarah Whaley for American Student Radio. The interview is with Indiana University senior Brennan Murphy, and the score is a remix of Chris Zabriskie's Cylinder 6. If you liked this show, please email Sarah at sewhaley at indiana.edu. That's S-E-W-H-A-L-E-Y at indiana.edu with comments and suggestions. This week, producers Nissa and Emily spoke with Fiona, a born and raised Buddhist. She shared what it was like growing up with the teachings of the Dalai Lama and talked about a trip she took to India and Nepal. I remember going in there and crying because it's so incredible, like this really pure energy. You know, when you're someone who's spiritual and you go to these really holy places, it's just like really overwhelming in a really beautiful way. Last winter, Fiona Harvey, I'm Fiona Harvey, found herself in Maritika, a small town in Nepal. She'd been warned it was pretty rough there. You know, there's no nothing like air conditioning. There's no bathrooms. Like, it's really minimal. There's no restaurants. Like, you're just going to be up there. You know, it is like a small town, but it's, like, very poor, you know? And everyone had been preparing me. And I remember they were all, like, really pleasantly surprised how I was just so in it, you know? Like, I was just totally there for it. There was no moments where I was like, what am I doing here? Get me out of here. This is too much. Like, it wasn't anything like that. While there, she visited a holy cave where some famous Buddhists attained enlightenment. People still meditate there, and there's a bunch of bats, and it's like this crazy cave, and it smells terrible, and people light candles and light incense and do all sorts of practices there. Fiona's parents became Buddhists together in their 20s. They were living in California, and they raised Fiona and her brother Griffin with Buddhist influences. I remember, like, every summer we would go into the redwoods of California, and there's this thing called Vajrapani Center, which is this Buddhist family center, and they have this camp, like this summer camp, and the parents do stuff, they listen to teachings, the kids do stuff, they do, like, little activities. It was a couple weeks, and you'd sleep in tents, and there'd be group meals, and you say a bunch of prayers. In my earliest memory of that, I was probably five. Fiona said one thing about being raised by Buddhist parents always sticks out to her. We had never killed bugs when we were younger. Anytime there was a bug in our house, we would take like a cockroach or something. We'd take like a cup and a piece of paper. And I remember my dad used to walk it around what we would call a stupa. So it's like these holy objects and holy images and say mantras. You know, me and my brother, we still have these mantras memorized that we learned when we were super young. Fiona still has two mantras memorized from her childhood. So the first one is Omani Pemehum. Everything is just Omani Pemehum. There's like this Buddhist belief that it's always being said like at some point in the world. That's the medicine Buddha mantra. Fiona says it is used if you or someone else is sick or in meditation when thinking about sick people in the world. 
In elementary school, Fiona and her family moved to Florida. Unlike California, there was no Buddhist temple in her area. Kids there didn't interact with Buddhists often, and Fiona started feeling self-conscious about her religion. I remember, like, telling kids, and it kind of became this thing where, like, I kind of didn't want to talk about it. I don't think people would try to be, like, malicious, but the ignorance comes out. People are like, do you worship the fat guy? And I'm like, I don't even know who that is. That's not my tradition at all. Like, (laughs) so... It was kind of complicated. Kids tried to understand Buddhism through stereotypes they had grown up hearing. People would always ask me, like, so you don't believe in God? And I'm like, not the way that you're thinking about it. Like, people would ask me, do you believe in reincarnation? The answer is yes. Do you believe in karma? The answer is yes. All these concepts are way more complex than, obviously, school kids understand them. Even more complex than I understand them now. Buddhist dogma is, whew, it's like way out there. People, like, study their whole lives about it. During her trip to India and Nepal last winter, Fiona visited holy sites and delved into Buddhist teachings. At the end of the trip, Fiona met up with her old teacher, Lama Zopa Rinpoche. Seven years ago, she took refuge with him, where she proclaimed devotion to Buddhist beliefs through vows. People say that it's harder to get an appointment, like, a meeting with Lama Zopa than it is with the Dalai Lama. Like, he's really hard to get in touch with. But we did, we did, we got to see him and I was like crying the whole time, just like being in his presence and, oh, I want to cry thinking about it now. Like, it was just like really incredible to see him. Fiona practiced her religion a lot over the summer before coming to IU last fall. Since she's been here, though, she hasn't been as active. As far as meditating goes, over the summer, I'd probably do it every other day since I've been here, you know. Oh, you know, last semester I probably did it four or five times, and, you know, it's easy to do, like, laying in bed. You know, people think of meditation as stopping your thoughts. Good luck with that, because that's impossible. There's no such thing as (laughs) stopping your thoughts, but it's kind of, like, watching your thoughts. Think about what you're doing. Um, A big thing with meditation is just watching your breath, feeling your body, the space you occupy, and I always remember, like, them telling us when we were younger it's like imagine it's like a field and you look up at the sky and your thoughts are just like clouds and you just watch them pass you just let them pass by so you think of something and maybe it's a worry that you have you're trying to meditate and you think i have this paper due next week and i haven't started it and you just let it pass and then you have something else you're like oh um i think my friend is mad at me and i'm not sure what to do and you just you let it go just on to the next thing you just watch your thoughts as they pass by for American Student Radio in Bloomington, this is Nissa Cruz and Emily Beck. Special thanks to Fiona's dad, Roy Harvey. He runs lamrim.com, that's L-A-M-R-I-M.com. The chanting you heard came from his website. More mantras and Buddhist teachings can be found there. Can you tell if this burger contains bacteria that could cause kidney failure? Listen. You can't see it either. Use a food thermometer to be sure you've cooked meat and poultry to a bacteria-killing temperature. Raw or undercooked meat may contain bacteria that can make you very sick or worse. Roughly 3,000 Americans will die from food poisoning this year, but you can keep your family safer. Check your steps at foodsafety.gov. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Most days go by without a whole lot of surprises. But what if a disaster strikes without warning? What if life as you know it has completely turned on its head? Would you be prepared? Before a disaster turns your family's world upside down, be ready. Get a kit. Make a plan. Be informed. Learn how at www.ready.gov. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Ad Council. Each year, there are more than 20 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States. By the age of 25, about one out of every two sexually active people will get one. And if left untreated, many can cause infertility and increased risk of cancer and HIV. But STDs often don't show symptoms, meaning many people who have them don't even know it. The only way to know that you have an STD or an STI is to get tested. And it's important to have a conversation about sexual history with your partner when starting a new sexual relationship. You can find a testing site near you at gettested.cdc.gov. My co-host Carter sat down with Assistant Professor Cooper Harris to discuss a typical Sunday for a lot of Americans. Fair warning, 
It may not be what you expect. Here's her with the story. So I didn't really like bring any questions because I kind of wanted it to be a little conversational. Hopefully got the levels set. My name is Cooper Harris. I am assistant professor of religious studies at Indiana University. So Professor Harris and I sat down to discuss a typical Sunday for many Americans. Supplicants enter into sacred space wearing, uh, wearing certain colors where they will assemble in the sanctuary. They will stand and rise as one. They will chant. They will do hand signals. They will implore the divine for victory over the forces of evil from Purdue University. Okay, so maybe not what you had in mind. We're actually discussing the comparisons between religiosity and sports. So, of course, we talked about Indiana basketball. Well, there is this this glorious past, and it certainly is part of the present. It informs the way that we understand the present. Uh, can the present measure up to it? What will the future be? But but it's also living by and according to certain codes. I mean, someone like Robert Knight, Bobby Knight, is is although his end here was you know, controversial, he's he's still so intimately associated with the image of of the university and with the program. And and so, I, I think basketball takes on these kinds of characters uh, that not only from the people who do it, but then get ascribed to the university, uh, that, that people, that fans then try to take on to themselves. So if we want to think of one thing about religion is how should we live, how should we be, how should we act? Uh, sport teams, sport, sporting events provide an example of that. A, a kind of They become emblematic of, of what it means to be a Hoosier. What does it mean to be a Hoosier? Well, it means to be a champion. It means to play a certain way. It means to go about one's life a certain way, to prepare a certain way, to be have a certain kind of discipline, uh, to have a certain kind of, of hustle, to give a certain kind of effort. And so if we think about, um, again, if we think about religions as, as inform- giving us a code or giving us an ethic, I think there's a way that we also can derive our own ethics, perhaps, uh, certainly universities or alumni or students can can derive those ethics from examples that they see on the field or on the court. We also talked about another very famous private university in Indiana. Another element which is is the way that the way that sport has been and this gets to college sports has been useful for helping institutions become more famous. Notre Dame is a very good example of this. They were hundred and some years ago, the end of the 19th century, really kind of a small frontier Catholic school in the middle of nowhere who was willing to play anybody, anywhere in football. And because of doing this, they became, they became known and they became this, this symbol for Catholic America. I have uh, a friend whose parents grew up in, in Texas, miles and miles and miles away from South Bend. But every Friday morning in the fall, the nuns would say a special prayer for Notre Dame football. And so it becomes this galvanizing point of identity for American Catholics. Uh, and there was a New York Times article five or six years ago about Liberty University in Virginia, Jerry Falwell's university, looking to do sort of the same thing, using a football program to make it what it called the Notre Dame of evangelical colleges. And so trying to, trying to make a name for itself through athletic competition in a way that that raises the profile and makes it kind of this well makes it the center for evangelical uh, education in America, but using athletic sports, so using the sports teams as ultimately a kind of evangelizing force. In, uh, particularly Notre Dame and Boston College is really big because it's the Catholic Bowl, right? And so, so that's bragging rights within the tradition. And then you can certainly see something like, and, and they don't really play anymore, but, but something like, say, Notre Dame versus Yale or something where you would have, uh, there certainly would be class and regional distinctions in there, but also kind of a strong Protestant identity versus a strong Catholic identity. I suppose what a lot of this is getting at is identity, which is something we can find in so many different places, not just sports and religion. Although religion often gives us a sense of ourselves, I am blank, I am this, I am that, it's who we are. Just in the way that Catholics, Buddhists, Muslims, etc. can understand themselves through their beliefs, sports fans can also find identity in their communities and with their team. It's something that is inherent, either inherited or something that is part of regional identity. 
it's it's something that runs deeper than ordinary bonds. So you can see someone, I think particularly if you're away from campus or out of the country, right, and you see someone with an IU sweatshirt or something, right, you have this this kind of of, of bond with them that sports becomes a kind of affirmation of. You may very well be saying the same thing that your grandparents chanted at a, at a game or that your grandchildren will be chanting at a game. I want to say quickly, this isn't a direct comparison. We're not comparing Colts fans to an entire religion. We're just exploring the qualities that are represented in both. A kind of church definition of religion, it's, it's very different. But if you're interested in things like long legacies or ghosts or haunting or rituals, uh, these kinds of things are definitely what you would explore very deeply. So if anyone found the things discussed during this episode as interesting as I have, possibly next spring semester, one year from now, Professor Harris may be teaching a class on religion and sports in the IU's Religious Studies Department. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> That's all, yeah. yeah. For American Student Radio, I'm Carter Barrett. Catherine spent preschool through senior year in a Catholic school where she always felt different from her peers. Tristan sat down with her to discuss her experiences of being the only minority in a class of 39 students. This is strange. One of my first crushes was on this girl who was five years older than me. I was in seventh grade and she was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. And she was a very talented and very well-trained, like unusually so for someone her age, an opera singer. Okay. And she would canter at masses. And it's very strange to have gay thoughts during mass when your crush is singing like Agnes Day. It's very strange. <laughs> this is Catherine De La Rosa. She is a freshman from Padoga, Kentucky, and is currently studying journalism at Indiana University. Catherine, who identifies as gay and Filipino, went to St. Mary's High School, a Catholic high school in her hometown, before coming to IU. This Catholic school, it's not the usual fare of, like, a bunch of rich people with, like, plaid and, like, blazers. No, it wasn't that. We wore unisex polos and, -hmm. like, khaki pants, and it was... It wasn't the, the usual idea of a Catholic school. Every school day began with a message for students over the intercom. Welcome to St. Mary's, a Christ-centered community rooted in Catholic tradition, empowering students academically, encouraging self-sacrifice, and nurturing learners to become a positive influence on others. Please rise, turn towards the crucifix, and join us for the morning prayer. Catherine's graduating class had just 39 students in it. And it was a place where everyone knew each other. I only had a handful of friends. And, like, in a 39-person class, there are no, like, cliques and, like, popularity. Mm-hmm. But there there was a group of people you just had to fall into socializing with just because it's such a small so – you have a, such a small, like, range of people mm-hmm. to choose from. And um, I was never actually friends with those people except for one who keeps on trying to contact me. But mm-hmm. that's – no, I'm fine with Catherine that. always knew she had been different from the people she grew up with, not just because she was gay, but also because her parents were both immigrants from the Philippines. I had always been I like? I'd always been different just because I am Filipino and most my parents like in every town that we ever moved to, they always managed to pick the widest most the widest and smallest school. So I'd always <laughs> been different like in preschool like, I couldn't sit with other kids because my lunch actually tasted like something because it was ethnic. Mm-hmm. And so they made fun of me for that. One kid in first grade thought I was black because I was the darkest person in our class. So, like, oh, I'd always been different. Mm-hmm. So to me, not being a part of all the girls liking boys and just obsessing over them, I thought that was just another part of the, how different I was to begin with, mm-hmm. but actually I was gay the whole time. One day while in choir class, her teacher had them sing a song from West Side Story. In high school, um, this really old white choir director tried to make his choir sing America from West Side Story. Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the know anything about that song. Mm-hmm. It's sung by Puerto Rican immigrants, yeah. and I was the only brown person in my school so I was like I I lodged a complaint I and then like I complained I didn't it was like a very diplomatic email about why that's wrong and I sent to like the principal and the choir teacher himself but then like the reaction to it was like very it was an overreaction is what it was because I was pulled out of class for three hours and I was sitting in the principal's office while she talked at me mm-hmm. while a priest sat next to me and I'm like what are you doing here Father Pat and he mm-hmm. just he was like I, I don't I don't actually know <laughs> but, but 
Now that Catherine is at IU, she says that the experience has been very different compared to her time in Catholic school. I didn't have to go to church anymore because my parents weren't there, mm-hmm. so that was exciting. Um, I didn't really notice it at first. Like, I came, welcome week for me was like I, me sitting in my dorm and not talking to people. Mm-hmm. because Not because I was freaked out by being in a larger space, just by not knowing people. Mm-hmm. So I actually really enjoy it just because St. Mary High School was one hallway in a building, and mm-hmm. St. Mary Middle School was the other hallway. So, like, it was like, it's, it's liberating. Finally, I asked Catherine to share some advice about being different in a school where everyone seemed the same. Build a community for yourself, not like actually going out and talking to people because you're probably a child who doesn't have the means. But the Internet's there. You can Google things. Find, like, learn as much as you can about the world beyond what you have that your parents probably threw you into. From Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. Since this show's theme is religion and spirituality, we asked some of our producers about a moment they realized they were religious, spiritual, or secular. Here's what they said. I was raised Catholic, um, so I feel like I speak for a lot of Catholics when I say that when you're raised in that sort of environment, you become disenchanted with religion. But I'm definitely still spiritual in that I believe the way that people go out of their way to help others is biologically unexplainable to me. I think if you had asked me about three years ago, I would have said secular. But then I was talking with my sister over break. She was like very right off the bat, like, I don't believe in a God. And I just really balked at that. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and our website, americanstudentradio.org. Now, back to the show. In this next piece, we'll explore religious journeys. This winter, freshman Luma Kabaz took a pilgrimage to Mecca in which her spiritual journey coexisted along with her physical one. Abby Gibson brings us the story. Over winter break, my family took a trip to Saudi Arabia um, to perform Umrah, which is like the pilgrimage of Hajj. It's in the same city of Mecca, but there's a few like a few rituals that you don't do during Umrah that you do in Hajj. And Umrah is like not obligatory at all. It's any You can do it any time of the year, as many times as you want in your life. And it, it counts for good deeds, but it's not obligatory. But um, Hajj, on the other hand, you have to do during a certain time, and that time changes each year. And that's something you have to do once in your lifetime. Umrah is kind of like the like the dress rehearsal for like Hajj. My name is Luma Kabaz. I am a Syrian American Muslim and I'm 18 years old in that city and um, there's this huge mosque and it's called um, Masjid which means mosque and Nebawi which means the Prophet's mosque and it's just like a huge square and like in the middle of that square, there's like the prayer area. It was definitely significant um, so that I was there with my family because I know. Like, that's just like a part of the experience um, when you go to. Well, I wouldn't perform this. You get to. See, I mean, it's just like um, my whole life. Like I've been, I've been raised Muslim, um, and my parents and never imposed anything like forcefully on me, and they always like kind of let me understand the beauty of Islam my own way, and so being there with my family and, like, them kind of, like, Everything guiding me and telling me, like, oh, this is what you should say, this is what you should do. Um, it really made me appreciate them, like, bringing me up, like, the right way and not, like, you know, not, like, forcing anything on me, but still, like, opening, like, my eyes to, like, this religion. It's bigger and they, like, everything is, like, newer and it's, like, gorgeous. There's, like, everything is very detailed, the mosque and the ground and, like, they have these like umbrellas that they open up because it's really hot in Saudi Arabia. For me personally, I know that I have a lot of friends and family going through a lot right now, and they say that like all your prayers and everything over there is like multiplied, you know, in like the eyes of like God. So like 
you just get like so many good deeds and um your, all your prayers are answered and so i like asked all my friends um before like if they wanted me to pray for anything for them specifically so i like kept that in mind and i know there's like a lot going on in my own life and it just felt like good to like deal with it in that way instead of like another way I guess actually going into it I didn't actually like understand it that much I had to like learn how because there's a lot of things that like you it's just like things that you don't know so you have to like perform like an intention so basically you kind of make the intention that you're like you just consciously like make it that you're going to perform Amra and it's like for the sake of God and um, especially with like going on in Syria right now I definitely become more of like a spiritual person just because like it's really hard to like remain patient but like a really big part of our religion is patience and just like asking God and like just trusting that like whatever you know he wants to happen will happen and like he'll like work things out in the end you know so it was really important to me to, to just like understand that and like being there definitely I felt like a better person because I felt like I was in the presence of everyone that kind of shared the same values and I felt like I was in the presence of like um, our prophet um, peace be upon him because like we visited where he used to, we stood on the grounds he used to stand on to pray and it was just like really emotional and I just like I definitely took like the most advantage of that every second I could um, like praying and you like say these prayers and just to get to Tawaf there were like all these like people and like we were all just like in a herd like I don't even think I, I was walking I think I was just like being like pushed with like everyone um and then they say that the first time you see uh the Gaba your like prayer that you make is like really really powerful and like I don't know if that's just like a myth or whatever so like they say that the first you might not realize it, but Bloomington has an incredible amount of religious diversity, from about every denomination of Christianity to our Tibetan Buddhist monastery. Last summer, producer Sophia Salaby visited one of Bloomington's lesser-known religious groups and brings us this story. Even though I've considered myself atheist for more than five years, I've always been interested in the concept of religion. What drives people to it? What drives people away from it? Is it the belief, the promise of a future beyond death, the community, or something else? That's why last June, I found myself attending a pagan summer solstice ritual in Lower Cascades Park. Let the gates be open! Let the gates be open! Let the gates be open! I had heard of Black Bear Grove, a local druid group in Bloomington, through a friend who's a religious studies major. After hearing him recount his experience with one of their rituals, I knew I had to go to one. There was something about the idea of druids existing alongside the world of Snapchat, megachurches, and the candidacy of Donald Trump that seemed incredible to me. There's no central leader, no Pope or Dalai Lama for Druids, just ancient gods and spirits that supposedly bring people closer to earth, to nature, to their roots. I honestly didn't know what to expect. I actually walked into another group at the park dressed in what I would describe as Renaissance live-action roleplay wear and assumed it was the group I was looking for. But soon, I found a small group of about 10 regular-looking people talking over a potluck with a small fire nearby. After a brief rundown of the events of the day, the ritual began. If you talk to 10 different pagans, you're going to get 10 different definitions of paganism. Um, most of us are polytheists. We don't do the Wiccan thing where it's one god and one goddess showing many faces to humanity. It's more that, you know, we think all gods have a bit of merit and personality and individual names. Um, so we, we honor many gods. We honor the kindreds. So that's the deities, the nature spirits, and the ancestors. So we do a bit of ancestor veneration, um, spirits of place. And we also spend a lot of time honoring the Earth Mother at every event. Earth Mother, for those of us who consider ourselves polytheists, you create something of confusion. <laughs> By no fault of your own, all cultures have named you. All cultures have personified you. In all times. That's Sydney, or as she's known to her friend, Sunny. She's been pagan since her early teen years and has been a member of Black Bear Grove for five so what does it mean to be a pagan in the modern day? Instead of saying um, we're blessing a hunt, we don't hunt, except for maybe one of us. Um, so it's more of a hunt figuratively, you know, a symbolic hunt. And the same thing with fertility. None of us are farmers. 
but um, none of us really are going to bless our fields, you know. None of us are really going to pray for a good harvest. We're looking for more of a symbolic harvest, a figurative harvest, you know, whether, you know, like if one of us is starting a new career as an archivist, like our one friend is, he's helping for fertility in all his endeavors, not necessarily, you know, apples or grain. To do this, Black Bear Grove did something they called the working to achieve their goals or something they want by harnessing the power of the four elements. After calling upon and honoring all of their gods, they took a moment to visualize what they wanted, then put their hands in a dish of dirt to plant the seeds of their goal. As solemn as this sounds, the druids did not take themselves too seriously. Next was water to get the seeds started, which is when they played with mini water guns. Blessings! For air, they lined up and took turns shooting nerf darts at a target to symbolize achieving their goal. Finally, for the fire they would need to succeed, they lit tiny pieces of paper on fire that burned so fast they would disappear into thin air. Strangely enough, even though I couldn't participate because I was recording, I did visualize a goal throughout the whole process, and I think I was hoping that this piece would turn out well. Despite knowing she was pagan for most of her life, Sunny had trouble finding a group that fit her. But once she came to Black Bear Grove, she found a place where her own personal beliefs corresponded with the group's practices. Not only that, but she discovered a close-knit community of people that she looks forward to seeing at every ritual. We're a really small grove, and, um, you know, we get to know each other really well. I really look forward to seeing my friends. I saw this myself when I was there. One of the members was moving back home for a new job, and as he addressed his friends, I could feel how much they all meant to each other. An offering to... All the guardians of hearths to Brigid and the excellently long-named Nanto Suelta. Ooh, ooh, which pantheon is that? She's Gaul. All right, that sounds lovely. And the other hearth guardians that I do not know. Vesta. Vesta. Hestia. Hestia. Yeah. <laughs> As I face a move back into my mother's own hearth. Yeah. As my dear sister moves her children to a new hearth as well. May these moves go smoothly, with beauty and grace. Hail. Hail. You have two hearths now, Steve. <laughs> you always have a home at this hearth. Yeah. The most recent initiate into the Grove, who asked me not to use her real name, so I'll call her Rachel, is still in what she calls the broom closet. After finally being comfortable to admit to herself that she's pagan, Rachel's still not able to come out to her close friends and family. I know they kind of know, but so long as we don't talk about it, it's all right. But she says the freedom within the Grove makes it a whole lot easier to be herself. Everything is very open and everybody's having their own experience, but we're all doing it together. So it's still it's still a very much shared experience, but we all appreciate that everybody is going to have their own, <laughs> their own um, relationship to the divine. And maybe that's the answer. People follow religion because they want to be connected and be a part of this bigger organism. And the only difference between religions is the values they preach. For Druids like Sonny and Rachel, they've just gone way back to pull history into the modern day. And surprisingly, it works. Each member has a role during the ritual to contribute to the group, but at the same time, they're each allowed to express their own faith in their own individual way. In the past, I felt extremely uncomfortable when attending religious events. I didn't feel anything at a deeper level, or I didn't know what to do with myself. And at the beginning of the ritual, that awkwardness was there. But as it went on, the members of Black Bear Grove welcomed me into their world, allowed me to participate as much as I wanted, and were generally just kind people. After the ritual ended, I left to go to my car, leaving Black Bear Grove just as I found them, enjoying each other's company and sharing their small part of the world. For American Student Radio, I'm Sophia Salaby. Growing up in a religious household can cause many questions to arise. Is there a God? What does my religion actually mean? A lot of people question their faith at certain points in their lives, and our next story is a personal narrative on questioning faith. Allison tells us her story. My name is Allison Underhill. I am a sophomore, and I am studying journalism. I feel like I've had a really tricky, kind of complex experience and relationship with faith for my entire life and I'd like to share my personal story. My story all started before I was even born. My father grew up as a devout Catholic because of his mother. Um, His entire mother's side of the family was very very devout Catholics. They went to church every single Sunday. My dad told me we went to church 
every Sunday, no matter what. If they were on vacation, they would find a church in the local area and they would go. There was no excuses, no exceptions. And so then when his mother passed away, um, when I was about a, a month old, he made a decision that even though he didn't necessarily believe it, everything that the Catholic Church taught, because they're such strict, there are such strict rules, he still deci- decided that he would raise me, my sister, and have my mom take us to Catholic Church every Sunday as well. So I grew up devotely Catholic. Um, I went to Sunday school every Sunday. Uh, I was actually confirmed in the church. So that was a big ceremony where I basically stood on an altar in front of the church and declared that I would be Catholic forever, which now I guess is ironic because I do not consider myself to be Catholic anymore. That all lasted until I was about 17. Um, My family decided to stop going as often. Instead of going to church every Sunday, we might go every other week or once a month until it got to a point where we didn't really go at all. And so, I mean, I was happy. I never really enjoyed, like, Catholic services. They didn't make me think. It was just sitting in a pew, just doing these traditions that have been done for a thousand years just because I felt like I had to. There was just no um, spiritual or emotional connection with the church that I wanted. And so I kind of took my religion into my own hands, and I decided to try and find God myself, I guess. And so a lot of my friends went to a local church. Um, It was a non-denominational church, just straight up, just plain Christian. And so I decided to go to that. And I liked it. But even though I started to go to this church and I would go to youth group, I'd look around me and see all these people with these really strong relationships with God. And I did not have that at all. I was just kind of like there floating in the background unsure of why you know what I was doing and whether or not God actually existed um and so I talked to some people and they said oh just start talking to God so I did and I kind of made my own version of praying where God just became you know my best friend that I would vent to about my life and everything and slowly but surely I started to see those things in my life that I have been venting to God about changed they became better the problems I was having slowly went away and I was becoming a better version of myself And so I guess that's where that leaves me now. Um, I don't consider myself to be a very religious person. However, I do believe in God. I feel like I just have to believe that there is something out there, that there's a greater power that has a plan. I think that people want religion and people use religion because they're scared. People want answers. People look around at all these terrible things happening like the Holocaust or Syria or just genocide, 9-11, and they want to know why does this happen? How can there be a God? And so people that are religious say, well, God's making this happen to teach us things. And that was always one of my biggest pet peeves is, well, how come God seems to always be teaching us things? What can we learn from human tragedy? But for me, it's like, I think that there's a God out there. But honestly, if he loves us and he put us here, like everyone says, I don't think that he would want us spending our all of our time, you know, trying to figure out these answers to things. Because if only he has the answers then what's the point of like constantly trying to figure out those answers? So Sarah Friedlein is a typical student. She goes to class, does her homework, and spends some time with her friends. There's just one major difference, however. She's considering becoming a Catholic nun. Taylor Haggerty brings us this story. When you think of nuns, chances are you think of the sound of music. Maybe you think of silent women stalking about in their black gowns. For Sarah Friedlein, nuns are her friends and potentially her new family. Would you mind giving us a tour of your small space here? Um, having an icon corner is like really common among like Byzantine Catholics. It's on an east-facing wall. All right, is, so I guess I'm Sarah. I'm a junior at IU. I'm majoring in English with a minor in linguistics. But I guess like the point of this is that I'm considering becoming a Catholic nun. Up until last summer, Sarah wasn't thinking about convents or nunneries. She was planning on entering graduate school to study library sciences, eventually becoming a librarian. Now that's all come to a halt. God has always been like the most important thing in my life. And I think I kind of sat up at one point this past summer and was like, wait, like, why have I never thought of the convent? Like, that's a way to totally dedicate your life to God. She can't go to graduate school and the convent. She has to choose one or the other. Going to graduate school means collecting student debt that keeps her from becoming a nun. Going to the convent means giving up everything else. You know, it's it's a communal life. You you vow obedience to your 
monastic superiors. So, you know, if they tell you do something or go somewhere, you go. To become a nun, you have to take three holy vows, obedience, poverty, and chastity. You give up your personal freedom and all of your belongings to dedicate your life to prayer. It isn't for everyone, but the convents have ways to figure out if you fit the bill. It's like often a mutual thing. Like if they look at a person and say, you really don't fit, often that person feels that themselves. You enter the convent as a postulate and spend a year studying monastic life before you take temporary vows and graduate to being a novice. From there, it can be five to seven years before the clothing ceremony where you take permanent vows and receive your black veil. But before all of that, you need to find a convent. Being in Catholic circles, you hear about these sorts of things. So I kind of looked into it a little. There were a couple I was interested in. um, So I just wrote them letters. Sarah wrote letters to two different convents. One of them got back to her right away, and she and the mother superior got to know each other over a lengthy phone call one Saturday morning. You know, I think she wanted to make sure I, like, was actually serious. And she was like, I think you'd do well to come and visit us. And so see what you can work out. Thankfully, I had a school break coming up. Sarah visited the convent a few months later, around Christmas time. She took part in six prayer sessions a day and learned about the schedule of the convent, including recreation and work time spent caring for horses on the farm. During her stay, there was one thing that really bothered her. You go into church by twos and, you know, you bow and cross yourself to the tabernacle, you know, where the Eucharist is, and then you go to your place. And that's like, that's not a big thing, right? That's not hard. But like, honestly, remembering to do that and not just like barge straight into church and go to my place was like really hard the first day or two. Other than that, though, the convent was all that Sarah could have hoped for. There's sort of a flow of life. You know, now I pray, now I have my work period, now I'm going back to church. So I think that sort of lifestyle provides sort of a structure in which to get close to God, maybe more so than I could out here. Sarah wants to go into a cloistered convent. This means that her interactions with the outside world would be limited to necessities. She wouldn't leave the area if she didn't absolutely have to, and even communicating with friends would be limited. The convent that she visited allows the nuns to write letters to friends once a year in December, and not at all outside of that. You know, some of the sisters were writing like a hundred letters to different, you know, people they knew. This was their chance to <laughs> talk to them for the year. Telling friends and family has been the most difficult thing about this decision. The other day I was like thinking about my friends and realizing like, I'm really actually thinking about them differently because I'm sort of thinking about, wait, how are they going to react to this news? <laughs> These will be like super weirded out and I'll have to explain. And like, <laughs> Generally, the reaction has been positive. Her friends understand her point of view and want the best for her. But not everyone has been so accepting. I think my mom's not super happy about it because, for one, she's not Catholic, so that that doesn't help anything. Sarah's dad is supporting her, but her mom is having a hard time coping with her decision. It's hard. It's hard for the family of anyone to be like, well, this child isn't going to be, you know, at family holidays anymore. This child isn't going to be around. This child's going to be far away. Even if they didn't actually consciously think, I really, really want grandchildren, that all of a sudden gets taken off the table. And it isn't just her mom that's having a hard time. The hardest thing for me would be giving up family, seeing them often and all the time and just being able to be like, yeah, I'm going to go visit my family now. Even knowing that, Sarah thinks this is the right thing to do. I have to be willing to give it up, to say, like, yeah, my life with God is worth giving this up. So is your relationship with God worth giving up your family? I mean, I guess I would say, yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying, sort of by going up into the convent. Sarah doesn't see herself as giving anything up to live in a cloister. I'm not going to live with complete strangers. I'm going to live with people I'm already sort of growing to really care about and you know, I would think that would only increase as I lived with them. Although not everyone will understand, Sarah sees the potential to have a fun and fulfilled life in a cloistered convent. When we're in recreation period or when we're working together or when we're like eating together, there's like a lot of laughing and happiness. And it isn't just about that. A nun's job is to pray, something that Sarah is already extremely dedicated to. I've always thought prayer was really important and maybe like, maybe it's the thing that actually, you know, makes whatever happens happen. I think that's sort of most consistent with my creed of belief. Toward the end of our interview, I asked Sarah if she was afraid she might be missing out on something by entering life in the convent. 
I don't think there's a fear of missing out because to me, to Catholics, you know, this is the most important thing in life. Everything else is beside the point. What would I have missed out on? I guess I would say I don't think I have to try everything to know something is right for me. Sarah is taking her time to decide if this is what she wants to do. She knows that becoming a nun is a serious commitment. It's kind of funny. Making this decision makes all the other decisions I've ever made in my life seem like really temporary. I'm making a decision for life. I'm saying this is what I want the rest of my life to look like. Even so, Sarah thinks she might have found a new home. I don't know. I'm just like still stuck on the fact that you miss it, even though you were only there for like a week. I know. Isn't that kind of weird? I shouldn't be that attached to a place I was there for only a week. This is a really fulfilling life that I guess I didn't even really know was an option for me for a long time, you know? It's been a month since her visit, but Sarah still finds herself missing the lifestyle she discovered there. I'm honestly like, I'm always looking at the clock and being like, what are the nuns doing right now? It's kind of hard, honestly, even now. Maybe it always will be, I don't know. She's come to realize that for her, the convent could be a new home. I've always been really attached to home, you know? So like, homesickness is kind of a feeling I'm used to, not all the time, but like, I miss home when I leave. And I'm like sort of feeling the same feelings for that place, which is really weird because I've never really felt them for anywhere but home. In Bloomington, I'm Taylor Haggerty. Now that we've heard all the stories for this episode, we hope that they have portrayed the diversity of belief and what it means to those who practice it. Like we said, we've explored the gray area of faith, that nothing is ever black nor white, even for believers. So thank you for listening to Indiana University students discuss their experiences in faith, religion, and spirituality. If you like the theme of this show, stay tuned for more episodes of The Gray Area, which is a podcast independent of ASR Tris and I will be hosting. If you have a story you would like to share, email me at bcbarrett, that's B-C-B-A-R-R-E-T, just one T, with your pitch. Be sure to tune in next Sunday at noon with host Matt Bloom as he hosts as he shares stories about how one person can change someone's life. I've been your co-host for the week, Tristan Fitzpatrick. And I'm Carter Barrett. Thanks for listening.